Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 24, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. With Reverend Mark Whitlock of Christ Our Redeemer, we'll reprise a bit of his Martin Luther King Jr. commemorative program that was last Sunday, that meaning January 15th, as well as look into the soul of the 45th President's inauguration. My second guest, Irvine Mayor Don Wagner, dialed in an appearance last week from the U.S. Mayor's Conference in Washington, D.C. Finally, we have the long-awaited opportunity to engage with 45th District Congresswoman Mimi Walters about health care, consumer protection, and when constituents can meet her here in Orange County. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my first guest, Reverend Mark Whitlock, pastor of Christ Our Redeemer AME Church in Irvine, for closing in on its almost two decades. He's also chief executive officer of Nehemiah, Nehemiah Ministries, a nonprofit economic development corporation for the 5th Episcopal District of AME Church. In addition, Reverend Whitlock is the director of community initiatives at University of South Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture. He previously served as the founder and executive director of FAME, that's Renaissance, the economic development arm of First AME Church in L.A. Currently, he serves on the boards for Harvard Divinity School Summer Leadership Institute, Southern California Edison Corporation, First American Corporation, Genesis Los Angeles, Orange County Human Relations Committee, American Civil Liberties Union, KOCE Television, Actually, they've got a new name there now. That's a Corporation for Southern Broadcasting. Odin Commission and the Red Cross of Orange County. Listeners may have seen him appear in the LA Times, Orange County Register, Black Enterprise Magazine, among several more. He lectures at the Harvard University School of Divinity and University of Southern California School of Religion, the UCLA Anderson School of Business, Interdenominational Theological Center, Cal State University LA and many high schools and churches. Reverend Whitlock has been a featured speaker at the White House's faith-based conferences. Let's send him back to the house now, that particular house now, for something to rub off on the new tenant's shoulder there. So since his last appearance on the show in 2011, he's racked up numerous national, state, and local community service awards. Reverend Mark Whitlock, welcome back. What a delight it is to have you back on Ask a Leader. Claudia, it's always a pleasure to join you, and thank you uh, for uh, taking so much time to read more about me than our radio interview will be. <laughs> no, it won't, no, not at all. But I, honoring is honoring, and I keep thinking I'll trim it, but where, where do I trim? So, you know, since I last had you on, I've covered six world religions in one hour with Jack Miles and had a Presbyterian clergyman and an imam on a couple of times. So now we're back, back here and together, and I'm so glad. Well, recently you offered... You were talking on the in the Twitter sphere, and you said, concerning spirituality, for us is the final frontier. We must explore new boundaries. What were you signaling in this day and age with that? 
Well, you know, for the Christian, in the Christian context, it is a 2,000-year-old religion, and clearly there was no social media, there were no proposed self-driving cars or cars driven by computers. There, there were not 250 television channels that constantly barrage you, barrage us with news. And clearly, there's no Google where, in the while I'm preaching, uh, my younger people are googling uh, what uh, other people are saying while I'm trying to give them information. So uh, you religion, see that? Do, do you give them? A, what do you do? Do you look, lock eyes with them they, when they look up? What do you do? I want to know the pedagogical tool there. It is hopefully they stay because they probably know more about uh, my, the subject I'm teaching than they do. That's so and, the, you know, the reinventing of religion is, is, is a reality. And unless we uh, embrace that, then the institutions that we have historically known will become museums of former beliefs and former ideologies and uh, former practices. And so we have to evolve. And, and, and I think it's more of... Uh, as Karl Barth would say, coming out of yourself into the greater self of the community. And if we don't do that, we will find ourselves uh, talking about what we used to do instead of what we are doing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, for the Martin Luther King service, last it was January 15th, your congregation presented a racial and religious diversity program, which included uh, several programs throughout the day. It was very, it was a banner, banner day. What were you trying to achieve on a special day, an auspicious day like that? One of the things that I remember of Dr. Martin Luther King, he said that uh, Sunday is still the most segregated day of the week. And the reality is, 50 years later, it is still the most segregated day of the week. And uh, because of this recent presidential election and certainly run, uh, we are more divided than we ever have been. And, and and I would say probably more divided than we were in the 60s, more divided than we were during Reconstruction. And, and by the way, that, that racial and religious diversity day made the front page of the Orange County Register and, and, and pictures above the fold and below the fold and then on page six. So I, I think we struck a chord uh, with uh, the media what we're trying to do. We the goal of that day was one, let's invite the Latino community to worship with us and two, let's invite our Jewish colleagues to worship with us and an African American church. Uh, and and our denomination is African Methodism and we're the oldest black denomination in the United States formed in seventeen eighty seven. We have always had uh, certainly one foot in the Bible and another foot in social justice, and we believe if you're not about social justice, then you're not about the real work of Jesus Christ, because he came and he was a disruptive innovator, and he indeed challenged the status quo. And so we believe we must do the same. And so we invited the Latino community, and the purpose of inviting the Latino community was very simple. The African-American church uh, has not uh, come to the table in any great numbers when it comes to immigration reform. Uh, We have not come to the table and recognized that not only was it Brown versus the Board of Education that changed this 
that changed the civil rights laws in this country, but it was also Menendez. Menendez, right. that case that right was here born in out, of, out, of, uh, out of Santa Ana also was one of the cases used to transform the dangling discord of uh, racial injustice in our country. And so uh, as a result of the African-American church and the African-American community failing to partner with the uh, Latino community, uh, I believe we're in the position here and that we're in a position today. We have pre- a president that wants to build walls instead of embracing uh, the uh, partners uh, that rest next to us. We want to denigrate our Latino brothers, and I think that's just wrong. And And so one of the initiatives that we're working on with our church is how do we help uh, the dreamers and these dreamers, these young Latinos who were born in this country, yet their parents weren't or not, were not, and they're in school, they're striving to achieve, they're paying taxes or benefiting from our educational system, but they're afraid to go to school because they think their parents may be deported. And and so we believe, as Cherminsky over at uh, UCI, Cherminsky over at UCI believes, is that it will require the help of volunteer lawyers. It will require the help of institutions uh, that are respected in our country to protect these dreamers and their family. And so we invited uh, the Cloud Church, led by uh, Pastor Jason Aguilar, to come and worship with us. And he brought about 200 people, and it was amazing. We had great service and uh, made some media. But the important thing is, is that we galvanized, we organized, as well as um, we're able to get lawyers out of our church to help um, these dreamers in partnership with the University Synagogue and UCI. So that, that was the first reason. And the second reason was our, our, our Jewish community. Our Jewish community uh, and our Muslim community have not been treated very well in the recent months, years. And so uh, the first step, uh, and we certainly will do the same thing with a Muslim community, but the first step is to bring in our Jewish community. And our Jewish community brought about 250 v- visitors from synagogues, and I thought that was a miracle within itself. They yeah. they they stepped out of their tradition and stepped into a Christian context, and they worship with us. And then we have had Rabbi Mark Borovich um, uh, come and preach. He's one of the leading uh, uh, social justice uh, spokesmen, as well as he runs a center for. Uh, uh, substance abuse recovery in Los Angeles. And so for us, and that's called Beit Shuva, Shuva, and it it was great. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, And I I joke about it because Rabbi Mark uh, preached, and then in the Christian uh, setting, in the Christian context, we opened the doors of the church, which means we give people an opportunity to join the movement of Christianity. And so we opened the doors of the church after Mark spoke, uh, this wonderful Jewish rabbi spoke, who does not, the, the Jewish community, they don't believe in proselytizing, but he spoke, and then uh, seven people came to Christ, and uh, the rabbi says, I'm going to put that on my resume, right. I'm going to put that on my resume. Right, right, right. There was a joke about he couldn't, but he said he he stepped up. He opened it, it he did. opened his door there with that, right? And that was great, and then that afternoon we had some legends we had uh, Suzanne, Dr. Suzanne Heschel, daughter of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, who was uh, a partner with Dr. Martin Luther King during the 
civil rights movement, and she was just breathtaking. She's so brilliant. She is yeah. absolutely brilliant under Dartman and Dartman. And 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 then we had other speakers as well. And then a great film that we showed and uh again the place was packed all the way to the back in our upstairs sanctuary. So it was a great day. It was a great day. It was a great learning experience for both the Latino community and the Jewish community. And it was a even better experience for the African American community and the members of our church. Well, I was happy to get to one part. I was unable to get to the, the latter part and was happy to hear Susanna Heschel on National Public Radio the following day. And she has she's the blue blood of civil rights movement and could really pin down what was so extraordinary about Martin Luther King's uh, calling uh, on a, a non and an all inclusive sort of religious calling of everybody to the civil rights movement. Well, my guest, if you've just joined us, is Reverend Mark Whitlock. He's pastor of the Christ Our Redeemer AME Church in Irvine. We're moving now, pivoting away from the glorious setting that he created on March, on J- January 15th, and March is on the mind, of course, uh, that let's talk of then about the platform, not so much the sanctuary. What did you make of the selections of President Trump's inaugural selections of the clergy present and presiding there at the inauguration? Well, first, it wasn't well attended, and, and let's be clear, I mean, and, and I don't believe in alternative facts. Pictures uh, speak for themselves, and I'm not speaking against the president as much as I'm speaking up for the people who did attend. And um, and and I heard his press secretary suggest that it was the most viewed uh, presidential inauguration in, in the history of the world. And, and, he, and, and I dare say that the 1.3 or point four million people that went to President Barack Obama's first uh inaugural and then the second was seven hundred and eighty three thousand uh seven hundred and eighty three thousand people. Uh, I would suggest that President President Barack Obama uh had the largest audience and it's primarily for one reason. Uh, because he was the first African American president in the history of this country, and it and it breaks barriers. and And, and I, as a uh, public servant, uh, uh, minister of the gospel, I, I honestly, I, I you know, I I voted for every president since I w- was able to vote, but I really wasn't into presidential politics because I'm a local guy, I'm a local on the streets guy, and so for me to get involved with presidential politics is fun from a distance, but. To get really caught up in it, no, because it doesn't really impact the local community. It takes years for things to trickle down from Washington, D.C. before you feel any measurable impact. It's great conversation, great water cooler conversation, but it doesn't make any difference for people who are homeless, hungry, and uh, naked and need clothing. So for me, it, it was good. But once President Barack Obama got involved, it was just sensational. So uh, alternative facts for me don't work, I do believe that Trump was business as usual. Uh, there's nothing unusually different about Trump other than the fact that he's a business person. You know, great, he made a lot of money, but it's just another white guy, another white male, taking the leadership of this country. So there's nothing unusual about that. There's nothing dynamic about that. There's nothing that's going to drive me to want to look at Donald Trump other than his buffoonery. So for me, the selection of the candidates, uh, I'm sorry, the selection of the prayer partners was not unusual, but 
it was fun to watch. I mean, I have a good friend in, in Bishop Kevin Van, who's responsible for the Orange County Diocese, and um, he and I are frequent prayer partners and Bible readers. And so to have the uh, the uh, New York Bishop uh, offer words, uh, certainly a prayer, I thought was fitting, uh, considering they are the largest Christian, or certainly uh, Christian follower uh, group in the country, uh, the largest one in the country, then followed by the Latino president of the Latino uh, Evangelical Association, I know him, Uh, I thought that was good, because I thought, for me, I said, at least he is trying to bridge the gap, he's trying to uh, make amends because some of the racial hatred and the challenge of immigration reform and and just some words that he used were horrible and 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 I thought it was I thought it was at least he's trying to do something that 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 speaks different than the campaign and then Paula White Paula White's an interesting character for us okay Paula, Paula White's interesting She's Paula, a Paula White is. A Caucasian, but she has a primarily African-American following. Um, and when she was out of Florida, I'm not clear where she is now, but if she's still in Florida, it's great. But she is uh, as Afrocentric as it gets when it comes to her preaching style, her antics, her ability to evangelize uh, markets that historically are underserved and and, and we know she got into a little bit of a tizzy with Senator Greens, Greensley uh, because of her failure to account for the funds raised and the misuse of funds raised. And so uh, we, we know that she has some challenges there, along with uh, several other, uh, you know, Joyce Myers and others, uh, Eddie Long, the, the late Eddie Long and Creflo Dollar. But beyond that, her theology is still very much set in a Pentecostal vein. I question her credentials, but in the same breath, you know, she uh, has helped uh, many a people, and she does tend to focus in on low to moderate income communities. I do have challenges with her prosperity gospel kind of bend, but I do believe that as we have clearly come out of uh, the uh, 90s and the early part of the... uh, 21st century, that prosperity gospel has gone. Many of those uh, would-be prosperity gurus uh, who use the Bible to affirm their desire for wealth have gone by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So you think that's why she has Donald Trump's ear, the prosperity gospel? It sort of overlaps with his kind of mercantile outlook? No, I I don't think so. I, I, I think Paula is the best of two worlds. She's Caucasian and she has a black, a huge African-American following. Okay. So I think she uh, certainly satisfied the absence of the African-American pastors. Now, I what I do think could be about, have been a problem is that we know that traditional mainline African-American denominations probably did not accept any invitation right. uh, from the president to speak. I would be very surprised if my denomination 
accepted an invitation to speak. And then as well as other traditional African-American denominations. And so for me, I think she is the best of both where she's Caucasian and she has a very large African-American following. So what do you think in the the clergy that did speak at the inauguration, what do they say about the president's theology and how this weaves or unravels our national fabric? So, you know, and... and Does he, does he have a theology? Does he? I think of Donald Trump as a uh, you know Wharton business guy. He's a business guy, and I do believe that if you um, follow his philosophy or follow the philosophy of uh, business folk, they tend to put profits uh, first. They tend to put you know, the shareholders' concerns first. It's not about the larger community. It's not about taking care of the social concerns of the community. No, it really is about profit. And I think sometimes we are looking for a social engineer uh, in Donald Trump, and he's nothing like that. He is hes a business guy. It's about profit. It's about uh, how much money I can make, how many, you know, how many pennies on the dollar I'll make and try to squeeze as much of it out of it as I can. So when I look at Donald, I, I don't look at, I don't see a Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't see a Moses. I don't see a Buddha. I don't see, um, I, I don't see Muhammad. I, I see more of a business guy, right, who is looking to make a profit. And I think for this country, we've always hoped that our president had our best interest in mind. I, I don't see that. I, I and I don't think he has that that idiot. I don't think he has that mindset. I, I think he has historically been a baron of business. Uh, how can we make a profit? How can we improve the bottom line? How do I get the best out of an employee? And if the employee doesn't give me their best, then I have to replace that employee. Versus, uh, in, in the Christian context, what you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was homeless, did you house me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? That's the president that I think more low to moderate income communities gravitate to or drawn to versus someone who's, what have you done for me in the last few seconds? And then if you don't do it well, in his wonderful show, The Apprentice, you're fired. And uh, while that was fun to watch, in reality, it's hard to live. Well, I think in some cases it wasn't even a matter they were fired, but they weren't paid, the people that did work for him over the years in right. lots of casinos. So there, there is a, it's a, Checkered, checkered, checkered. Background. Well, it's a complex environment, isn't it? Because, yeah. again, this this whole concept of business. You know, if you just have a body, this is something that I wrestle with myself personally. Uh, business requires having a bottom line consciousness. You have to make sure you you meet the needs of your board. If if it's a corporation, you have to meet the needs of your customer. But the problem with businesses, particularly at the, at the Donald Trump level, there's no above-the-line consciousness. There's no, and then if you take a, a person like Trump, who has had the veil pulled off a long time ago, he can say what he wants, go where he wants, spend what he wants. Then there's this implicit bias, not only against the low to moderate income community, but even the medium middle income community, because he hasn't lived in that environment. He hasn't 
operated in that environment. He hasn't walked in that environment, so he has no clue what poor people are going through. He has no clue what even middle income people are. He has not a he has not a dime in that dollar, and, and so for for the lower for the low to moderate income community, we of course love uh, a Barack Obama. You can even because of George W's alcohol issues, addiction issues, uh, you, you can even <laughs> draw be drawn towards George W. Okay. But, and and you would think that you would love Kennedy, even though Kennedy <laughs> was a multimillionaire, but you felt that he cared. Donald Trump, you don't get that same feeling. So. You were talking earlier about the congregation uh, rallying with some social justice movements. Do you see that there's a place for congregations now in our time to resist against the rolling back of measures that have protected those middle income and lower income communities? Well, you know, as a as a clergy, our denomination doesn't, doesn't offer health care. And um, you have to buy it on your own. And so Obamacare, which brings 45 to 50 million people who never had health care before, and, and if that is repealed, if that's wiped out, what are you going to do with those people who have, have, who have a need for health uh, insurance? Uh, and, and then how do we legislate these health insurance companies so that they don't continue to increase their rates? Uh, which, again, puts people out. And let's not make it into this political game, but let's really talk about taking care of the least of these. And so for me, when we talk about the repeal of health care or the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, it affects the congregation. Because uh, I just put to rest a young lady who was 39 years, no, 41 years old, and she had uh, kidney cancer, and she passed away. And fortunately, she had insurance. But if she had not had insurance, her family of three and her husband, they would be financially devastated. And in grief. And in grief. And that's what we don't deal with. We don't deal with the rising cost of health care. A heart attack costs $250,000. My mother was in hospital for a week, and it costs $150,000. Thank God she had some insurance. So if we don't begin to wrestle with these issues as a church, because the church is the first to be called, uh, we and, and most people may know, but they, they don't know, I'm going to tell them. We pay uh, house. We pay hospital bills. We pay insurance. We we pay rent. We pay tuition. We pay utility bills when a member comes and says we need some help. So just imagine, just imagine how those costs are increased uh, when those dollars are no longer available through this public health initiative uh, called the Affordable Care Act. We knew it was in trouble the minute some politicians wanted to call it Obamacare. We, we knew it. But I'm hoping that that one initiative, that public health initiative that the faith community gets behind, boy, did we get behind the Women's March and on we last did. Saturday. We did, and I so wanted to give you more time on that, but uh, we've got to really wrap this all the way up and give you a, a moment just to bring up the, the FAFSA and California Dream Act open lab that you've got going on at the end of the week. And then the we've pipe, got to close. The, the I'm so sorry. The prison school pipeline, the prison has to come to an end. And the only way you're going to close uh, high school kids dropping out and getting into in, in the gangs and then going to jail, which cost our country a ton of money, is to provide them an alternative... And the alternative is education. 
if we can help students of all kinds first learn how to fill out the application and then find out how to apply for money uh, to to underwrite that education, then we believe we close the school pipeline to prison. So our church, Christ our Redeemer, at 45 Tesla, the telephone number is 949-955-0014, 949-955-0014, is one solution to close the school pipeline to prison to make more uh, wonderful students educated and then find out how to fill out a college application. We'll help you with that and we'll also help you find money. Well, that's wonderful. I'll be putting that in the podcast summary for everybody to go back to all of those details. That's all the time we have. Thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you on today. Mark Whitlock. That was Reverend Mark Whitlock, pastor of Christ Our Redeemer AME Church in Irvine. We'll be right back after a short station break with the Honorable Mayor Don Wagner, Irvine. The Honorable Don Wagner was sworn in December 13th of last year. He is now convening with his colleagues around the country at the 85th Winter Meeting of the U.S. Conferences of Mayors. They have a very vigorous roster, and we're lucky that we have a chance to speak with him today on Ask a Leader. Welcome back to the show, Honorable Don Wagner. Thank you, Claudia. It's great to be back on the show, and I appreciate the chance to chat with you. Well, Community Radio tries to do our earnest best to keep all of you local leaders accountable and accessible. So far, any high-water marks you want to report about what you are taking in at the U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting? Sure. This is the first one I've had the pleasure of attending, and I understand it is the largest gathering of mayors ever in the history of the conference. So there's an awful lot of, uh, of information and a lot of experience that I'm trying to tap into. The biggest takeaway so far would be at our lunch session uh, yesterday, the uh, uh, vice president-elect came and spoke and said some things that were uh, quite well received by uh, the mayors about the intentions of the incoming Trump administration. And what are those? Infrastructure? In in particular, uh, two things. One was infrastructure, and that is something that matters throughout the country. But as you know from our prior conversation and and from your experience in and around the Irvine area, um, we have transportation problems. We we are, are greatly impacted. And so the willingness of the Trump administration to entertain infrastructure projects and show a willingness to help cities again, throughout the United States, was something that I was quite glad to hear. One of the other things they they talked about is, uh, and it's been in the news a little bit, is maintaining the uh, tax-exempt status of municipal bonds, and something less important to Irvine, but nevertheless uh, important to the mayor's conference and to investors throughout the the United States. Um, And so that was good and very well, good to hear and very well received by the mayors. Well, the, uh, let's just go a little folksy here on you. Uh, have you made any new friends in cities you've not been acquainted with before? Um, 
I, I have made some acquaintances. We're, we're slowly uh, beginning deve- to, to develop friendships. But I'll also tell you, to, to be quite honest, I've tried to pack into yeah. this trip to D.C. some additional uh, meetings like uh, up on the hill. And so I haven't had the, all the social time, perhaps, that some of the mayors here have, uh, have enjoyed because I've been up to, uh, uh, to Mimi Walter's office already uh, this morning. I had an opportunity to to meet with some of Senator Harris's staff to talk about some Irvine issues. So I'm, I'm not going to come back with a, a whole lot of new friendships, maybe some new acquaintances, but I am trying to use my time uh, here productively. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean in a collegial, professional, oh, that kind of thing. So I, just to see whether that was it. So what did you talk with the Harris staff about? Uh, well, let's uh, cut to the chase and say the biggest issue in Irvine is transportation. Okay. And so we did have an opportunity to talk about um, uh, transportation, in particular federal dollars that we would hope would be available to help with the congestion on the 5 freeway and the 405 freeway. Uh, we are also in Irvine looking to extend uh, the, the one of our bike trails over one of the freeways. We're looking at uh, trying to get some federal funding. Uh, it's my understanding before I was mayor that the city put up about a million dollars for that project. We would love to get some assistance from the, uh, the, the federal government on that. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Veterans Cemetery, and then there is an issue. We've been working with the Federal Aviation Administration over um, some uh, equipment they have at uh, what used to be El Toro and is now the Great Park. And so um, we briefed the um, uh, Harris staff on that issue and hope to get some help from them somewhere down the road. Just for clarification, so this what is the equipment there? Is it there's, there's a there's it's called a VOR beacon and it has to deal with it deals with uh, air traffic up and down the coast and it's a federal aviation administration piece of equipment as okay. I understand it it's a it's a beacon and it's smack dab in the middle of the park right now it left over from El Toro, but it remains in use for air traffic up and down the West Coast. And our goal would be relocating, not eliminating it, but relocating it in in the park to an area that's, you know, not, as I say, smack dab in the middle of the place. Okay. So let's go back. You were mentioning the Veterans Cemetery. Were you talking about the proposed site or the the one that's been approved by the state legislature? We we mentioned, I mentioned to her uh, uh, staff both sites and that uh, I had been one of the co-authors of the original bill that brought it to the current site yes. on the Great Park. And I mentioned that there is uh, some talk of a different site that the veterans themselves are supportive of that is just outside the park boundaries, uh, remains an issue that's in flux, but also in flux is the financing to get it done in the first place. And so I told them, uh, here's the present location. There is a possibility that it will move. There are cleanup issues with respect to the present location. The veterans are thinking about someplace else. We have no specific ask today, but don't be surprised when we do come back with an ask and, you know, hear the parameters of the two sites, really. Okay, and I'm backing up on the list of things you're talking with the Harris staff. It's the um, about transit. Was there anything about 
any sort of infrastructure for federal support for public transit in servicing Irvine and in Orange County, OCTA? There, there was no discussion of that in in that in in okay. today's meeting. No. Okay. All right. No, there, I, I will tell you, I, we left them a fair amount of, of written material, and there is something in the written material that was left with them, but it was actually not part of the of the discussion. Well, what are some themes now? What did uh, uh, Vice President-elect Mike Pence talk about yesterday? Well, he talked a, a great deal in generalities because it is, of course, not even an administration that's in place yet. But it was about the support that the Trump administration expects to give to the cities. And, and then we heard the usual, um, and I don't mean to belittle it, it is true that the cities, the mayors themselves, you know, the government that is closest to the people is the one that generally has a better finger on the pulse of, of the public in their particular communities. He spoke as you know a former governor and recognizing the importance of the cities and listening to what the locals have to say are their problems and their thoughts as to how to s- solve those problems. Um, so there was several mo- minutes of conversation about that, uh, just that kind of pledge to look to the mayors as the resources in their cities for the types of information and projects. Um, so, so that was good. And then, as I say, there was some discussion of transportation or of, of infrastructure, and there was also um, some talk on, on, on taxes, et cetera. But really, it was a opportunity, an opportunity for him to say hello to us on behalf of the Trump administration and say the right things that we're going to look to you and we're going to listen to you and we're going to work uh, productively and cooperatively with you mayors. Uh, it's, it's my hope that, uh, that they carry through on that pro- uh, promise, and it's certainly my hope that um, the state of California adopts a somewhat less confrontational approach to the new Trump administration than we've seen so far, because that will certainly help us in the long run at the, at the municipal level. Has there been a discussion, formal or informal, about the block grant financing of state and local liabilities? There has not been one uh, to which I participated at, you know, at the federal level. Okay. So no. we're hearing certainly a great deal about that from the U.S. Congress. So Correct. And you may be at the receiving end of that while looking for how to shore up money that's not coming in, you know, through the other, uh, other acts, as it were. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. How well is Irvine known amongst mayors? Does it have a pretty high profile? The, the answer seems to be not a particularly high profile. Uh, the, you know, again, I'm, I'm new to this, and so I you know, can't tell you who the prior mayors knew or didn't know and what, uh, what their relationships were. But um, there are like 60 mayors from, from California. Okay. Uh, I want to say, actually, I think the number was 63, but... but you know, a lot of mayors from California are here, and I, 
I won't tell you that Irvine's got a particularly high profile yet. Uh, I certainly hope to change that. And as a city with uh, you know 260,000 people, we certainly deserve uh, a higher profile than perhaps we've enjoyed in the past few years. And uh, that's going to be something I'll be working on. And one of the reasons I'm here, you know, my first month on the job. Okay. Well, the last question. I know you are a busy fellow, and we are really lucky that we have a chance to speak with you. What? Let's say. Mayor Wagner, you were given the keynote speaking opportunity to your 300-plus colleagues there. What would you address them with? Wow. Now, that's a great question. Um, I would I would have to think about that. But one of the things I would say is, you know, we all heard the vice president-elect promise to use us as a resource and to uh, listen to what we have to say. Let's make sure we take them up on that promise and hold their feet to the fire. Um, Realize that the federal government is extremely big and extremely remote from the citizens of California and certainly the citizens of, of Irvine. Let's make sure that they do, in fact, listen to us. Let's think through what we want, let's be realistic in what we ask for, and then let's be tenacious in getting what we feel we deserve and make sure we are the voices of our citizens because we are the ones who knock on, you know, on their doors and uh, ask them for, uh, uh, for their votes and for their support. Take, take the administration up on that offer. Now, speaking of voices, and this is actually my real last question. You you opened it up on me. So as voices go, what is the best way for your constituents to register their voice with you? That is also a fantastic question. And what, what I did when I was in the legislature, and it's different as a mayor, and so I'm still feeling my way through the mayor uh, role, but... Um, you could you could always phone, you could always email, and someone from staff would would get to me. But it was a bigger district, about twice the size of the city of Irvine, and um, I'm trying to figure at this point is it is it going to be coming to one of my community coffees uh, that I'm I'm starting to schedule? Is it uh, an email to the city because those get forwarded through to me, and we try to respond to uh, to every. Uh, email that, that that comes to us at least acknowledge that it's been read and uh, and, and so I'm still trying to get a handle on that but I would say probably the best thing is when I'm at the grocery store come up to me say hello and tell me what uh, what's on your mind um, city council meetings are every other Tuesday they are open to the public we had 15 or so people speak to the council at the last meeting, come and, and, and talk to the council. We're all there. We'll all listen. Okay. Well, I hope that you'll keep KUCI in mind with, with posting us on when those coffees are happening so that we can uh, make sure you get broadest coverage that way and people have it. that opportunity. All right. Well, Honorable Don Wagner, convening with your 300 colleagues in Washington, D.C. at the 85th winter meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us on Ask a Leader today. My pleasure. Thank you, Claudia. Okay. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My last guest is Congresswoman Mimi Walters, representing California's 45th Congressional District, which does include UCI's 
campus. Congresswoman Walters, now serving her second term, serves on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, and she is the co-vice chair of the Congressional Women's Caucus. Her elected posts include Laguna Niguel City Council, two terms in the State Assembly, and one term in the State Senate. Her career before elective office was as a stockbroker. She worked for Drexel Burnham and Lambert, and then Kidder Peabody and Company. She earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science at UCLA. She comes from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Ask a Leader Congresswoman Mimi Walters. Well, thanks for having me, Claudia. It's great to talk with you. Well, one of the taller orders I've had, and it got squeezed further, is how much we're going to get two public policy items in, not even more than that. We'll hope to do that. So the Affordable Health Care Act is in the process of being repealed. What, Congresswoman Walters, do you offer as a replacement? Well, first of all... um need to remember that Obamacare has failed and it's collapsing um, on its own weight. And we are working right now to uh, rescue it and rebuild our health care system so that all Americans have access to quality, affordable health care. With, with due our respect, our plan will provide relief to all Americans, and particularly those who are facing significant increases in their premiums and those who have lost their health care plans, uh, despite being promised that they could keep them. Um, I uh, regularly hear from my constituents who are unable to afford their premiums and their deductibles. And it's important to me that we enact these reforms and provide affordable and quality health care for all Americans. So um, I think you you may have seen that 25 on average 25 percent increase in premiums have people have seen for Americans who have been uh, trapped in Obamacare. And there were 4.7 million Americans who were kicked off their health care plans by uh, Obamacare. And it's also uh, had $1 trillion in new taxes and mostly falling on families and job creators. And in addition, uh, Obamacare had $53 billion in new regulations requiring more than $176 million or million hours of paperwork. So you can see that we have quite... Um, a, a very big uh, project on our hands to rescue and rebuild our healthcare system. Well, the reason I ask about whether uh, what you have in place for uh, the for after the the you would repeal the Affordable Care Act is that if five point five million Californians are going to lose their health care coverage and two hundred thousand health care jobs would disappear in California, we want to know what what you have in place for. A, in, to replace the Affordable Care Act? Well, first of all, Claudia, um, we have a plan that we are going to be transitioning from phasing out Obamacare and phasing in our new health care plan. This is not a plan where suddenly millions of people are going to be going without health care insurance. We're going to transition them off and we're going to put them into a more affordable program. In addition, a lot of people pre-existing condition, will I be able to keep my plan? Absolutely, you'll be able to keep your plan. People are also concerned about if, you know, I have a, a child who's under the age of 26, will they still be allowed to be on my insurance plan? Yes, they will be able to be on your insurance plan. And how we're going to make it more affordable is what we're going to provide our insurance companies are going to have to compete over state lines. That's going to bring the cost of health care down for individuals. It will bring down their premiums, and it will bring down their deductibles. And that is basically the framework of what we're going to do in order to make sure that people have more access to affordable health care. 
For those of you who just joined us, we have just a few minutes left with Congresswoman Mimi Walters representing California's 45th Congressional District. And I, there is so much more to say, but I did want to give the consumer protection its due, or, or at least a mention here. So I wanted to find out, with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, it's known as the Public Company Accounting Reform and Investor Protection Act, you have an investment background. How do you see if there's a repeal of that? What will the impact be on investors on our household level? Well, first of all, Claudia, I was just appointed to the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And in fact, that's the meeting that I unfortunately have to leave for in just a couple seconds here. But that is the committee that has the jurisdiction over uh, consumer protection. And we are actually just about to go have our first organizational meeting right now. And we're going to be talking about um, all different forms of consumer protections. And um, as we go through that process, um, I'll have a better understanding of what we're going to be able to accomplish in that area. Will the Bureau remain intact? Um, I can't answer that question to you right now because I am literally just getting on that committee. I have not had any discussions with the chairman regarding it. And so, um, you know, I can't answer that question. But anyway, I've really got to go, and I thank you so much for having well, me on your program. Well, let's have you back. And, um, I've enjoyed talking with you. Okay, thank Thanks, you. Let's, let's have you back. Thank you so much. Well, that was Congresswoman Mimi Walters. I had so many questions I was going to ask that were pertaining to the Dodd-Frank Act. As I mentioned, her background was is investment, and so... We could explore some of that with her, but those protections are really important on the the local level, uh, the household level, and as, as is the the how the Affordable Care Act affects the the private household level budget. So I'm going to post on the website for the the podcast that the Walter staff is going to be giving a workshop uh, locally. It will be held on February 7th from 10 until noon at the Irvine Civic Center, One Civic Center Plaza in Irvine. So uh, apart from that, I guess we've got we to gotta call this show. This is a wrap, folks. Next week, we're going to hear from UCI Law School professor and insanely busy blogger Rick Hassam. And he's going to talk about voting rights and then some cool research is coming out of the neurobiology of learning and memory, whether it's exercising or the sleeping brain. So we'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.